Hey, welcome back to another episode of Not All at Once. This is Jordan Guess, and uh, yeah, today it's just me. Uh, we can give you, uh, or I can give you some updates to today about just kind of where the podcast is at, and uh, yeah, we'll go over the quick agenda for today. So yeah, well, uh, welcome back. We have not recorded an episode, I think, since December 19th. And so, yeah, we'll just give an update on where the podcast stands right now, give you a quick life update. I had uh, some crazy stuff happen uh, over the kind of the new year time. And then, yeah, we'll just get into some news. So what I was thinking we might cover today in the podcast is talking about uh, the U.S. debt ceiling fight that is uh, ongoing and just kind of what are the different political implications of that and how it all kind of plays into the treasury and how they're able to raise money. And, you know, I think the more interesting part is, is the, is kind of the politics back and forth and the strategy. So we'll talk about that. We will talk a little bit about a little Bitcoin recap for 2022, and then also look forward uh, in the Bitcoin world, kind of talk through, you know, just generally some censorship stuff, any new projects, and then just kind of talking about the Bitcoin community at large. And then lastly, I had a conversation with a new client um, where we were kind of discussing how to find a solid financial advisor and some different questions to ask. And so, and as a CPA, you know, run around with a lot of financial advisors, use one myself and refer people to advisors. And so just wanted to share some thoughts on, hey, if you're looking for trying to find a financial advisor, here are some things you should look for, some questions to ask. Uh, especially as we, you know, potentially just move into a more volatile time in the economy. And if you're not already working with an advisor, I think I would at least give it, give it a, uh, give it a good look, even if you're a kind of a DIY minded person. So we'll get into that. So, all right, let's start the show with just some updates. So just so everyone knows, Kindle is still going to be a part of the podcast. He's just taking some time uh, away right now and going to be a less frequent guest on the pod uh, just for work reasons. Uh, life is, is a little busy for him right now with some, with some work stuff. And so kind of what we had talked about is that we'll definitely do, you know, a show together at least every couple months. And then from other than that, I'll do a weekly show where we kind of just give uh, an update on some different news, some different things that are kind of on my mind. And then Kindle come on and, uh, you know, we can do a longer form show, talk about some different things in the news, maybe rehash some things that we talked about on the weekly, but that's also a good opportunity for Kindle to come in and uh, guns a blazing and challenge me on uh, different things that we talked about on the show from a week to week basis. So, so that's kind of the update on that. So as of right now, it's just going to be a monologue type of show and, um, and yeah, and then the the personal news is we, my wife and I had our first child on December 30th, 2022, which if you know what I do, I'm a CPA, I do taxes. It was really a fun uh, tax planning thing where everyone was, everyone that, uh, you know, knows me was like, oh, that, of course, you had a baby on December 30th, squeeze the t- child tax credit right there at the end of the year. So that was uh, fun, but uh, jokes aside, that it was a very, um, it was great experience uh we we got a healthy baby out of it the labor was a little bit long but that's okay and yeah now we're just we're back with uh back at home with murphy grace guests and uh yeah just 
introducing her into the world and also making sure she survives and and all those things so so yeah that's kind of the update on personal life and the podcast so yeah let's get to the first you know story that uh that we'll talk about today and that is the u.s debt ceiling fight that is going on so quick backstory you know uh assuming most of you who listen were following the election that happened in november and so essentially what happened was republicans took a slim majority in the house of representatives they lost the senate and obviously the presidency is still uh in the democratic hands and so as of right now it's pretty interesting landscape in congress because uh, i believe they only have like two seat majority uh republicans and so so the first kind of order of business was to choose a speaker of the house and if you were following in the weeks uh you know the first couple of weeks of january very difficult for republicans to really uh get behind well all the republicans to get behind one single candidate kevin mccarthy and so there are about 10 to 20 people who were uh holding out on on that vote and they were not voting for mccarthy and obviously no democrats were voting for mccarthy and you need a majority of this of the house of representatives to go ahead and get that through and so uh, that was a big, that was a big, uh, just, I would say embarrassment for the Republicans. They really just could not get behind uh, a single person. People were throwing out, uh, other names like Jim Jordan. I think Matt Gates even threw out Donald Trump's name, which was, you know, I think some of it was trollery, but ultimately what it came down to was there was some Republicans who just did not trust, um, that McCarthy, you know, would essentially lead the, lead the party how they were hoping and so and so they essentially engaged in making it difficult and then making sure that they got concessions from the speaker uh before they uh you know he earned their vote kind of thing and so finally got the concessions they got the they got the uh speaker voted on got it through i think after like 15 tries something crazy like that so all that to say that's kind of where we are where the you know, Republicans are definitely fractured in terms of uh, what people in the House of Representatives kind of think and believe on different issues. And so it makes it makes opposition being the opposition party a little bit difficult because you kind of have to all be on the same page, especially when you're such a slim uh, majority like that. You really have to be on the same page to, to oppose whatever's going on, you know, whatever's coming through from Democrats and stuff. So. So one of the one of the things that brings us to the story is, you know, this the debt ceiling and um, it's essentially Congress limiting how much money the, the government can borrow. And it was set at uh, it was set at thirty one point four trillion dollars. That was the borrowing limit. And the, essentially the uh, we've we've run up against that. And so they're trying to negotiate now. Uh, inevitably, this will be raised. There's no, uh, there's no real way to, to just politically, it's not popular to not raise the debt ceiling, let the government shut down, and then uh, allow you know your opponents to say that you don't care about Social Security or people who need these benefits or whatever it is. So whether you agree with, you know, we should stop spending so much money or not, it's really it's kind of this game that you have to play. Uh, in Congress. And so, so essentially 
Republicans are going to make it difficult. And on Thursday this week, so we're January 19th, we are uh, essentially staring down where they ran out of money, more or less, and they're going to have to implement so-called extraordinary measures to manage the government's cash flow uh, through the spring. And so this pushes us back uh, to June. So they don't have to necessarily... um, Make a make a decision right this moment, but they do have to. Uh, well, they will run out of money to pay all the bills uh, as soon as June. So they either have to uh, raise the limit, or they need to suspend the borrowing limit altogether. And you know, this just brings up. I know this is an economic show, market show, Bitcoin show. This brings up just generally the whole money supply question, and um, and obviously like what happens in the background of money creation and debt creation and, you know, repo markets and all the really intricate things that honestly, even people who've studied this for years would tell you it's so convoluted that it's really difficult to actually fully understand what's going on um, with the money creation thing within the United States. And then if you get outside of the United States, with the Euro dollar system, uh, it is, you know, it's essentially, um, smoke and mirrors it's hard to it's hard to really know what's exactly going on but with the congress you know they kind of have that power to at least raise the borrowing limit and then what that does it as it allows the treasury to uh you know to take out more debt to then pay for things that congress has already authorized is essentially what's what's uh what we're talking about so all that to say republicans have tried They've tried in the past to make this a really big issue, but at the end of the day, again, it's politically unpopular uh, for them, at, for just the common person. They just hear, oh, they don't want they don't want to pay for the services that they already signed up for, and Democrats get to go out on the offense and say, look, we care so much about people, and we really want to pay for all these things, but we can't because of this other side. And so um, every time the Republicans have tried to engage in this fight where they either tried to uh, not not raise the debt ceiling, definitely not suspend the debt ceiling, and let the government shut down, it's it's normally uh, an L for Republicans. And so, and it's a very difficult issue because, you know, if you're a reasonable person sitting there, you're like, well, but we need to get our spending under control. And I agree completely. And so it's really, there's not really a great answer on exactly how to do that um, because as you just increase the debt limit then you create new debt to pay for obligations which then further incentivizes congress to pass bills that you know spend more than they take in and then they can always just say well we'll just we'll take on more debt by raising the debt ceiling in the future to pay for these things uh so it's a whole mess (laughs) and 31.4 trillion dollars again it's just it's a number that people cannot wrap their heads around. I mean, I can't even wrap my head around that kind of number. It's so astronomically large that, you know, it's money that will, I just could never be paid back, especially with interest rates rising. It is just such a large number. Um, So all that to say, it's really putting, you know, it puts, it puts the future of our country. Just, it continues us down the path we've been down for a long time. But again, 
just show me the incentives. The incentives are to not deal with the problem. The incentive is to kick the can down the road, you know, get your spending bill through that essentially uh, makes good on the promises that you made to get to where you are as a politician. And then essentially say to yourself, it's going to be someone else's problem. And that is what has really been happening for the last, I would say the last probably 50 years at this point. So that's where we are with that. Um, all that to say, it's it's definitely it's a no win situation in my opinion because politically it's it's just a very difficult thing, and so eventually Republicans will have to raise the debt ceil- uh, debt ceiling, and you know essentially all this will blow over, and hopefully the Republicans can at least get some concessions out of the Democrats, really good concessions uh, from a policy standpoint, in you know before they actually say, okay, we're going to vote on this. Um, But again, the leverage, I would say, is more so with the Democrats at this point because they can always just say, well, we're going to sit this out until the government shuts down. You always want to make the other party seem like the ones who caused the shutdown. But, um, you know, you can do that with messaging, do that with with media machine and everything. And so so all that's say, we'll see where that goes. But that is definitely like one of the bigger things that's happening in Congress right now so all right let's jump over to uh to bitcoin let's just talk through you know kind of what's going on with bitcoin and just give a 2022 overview uh and more importantly i think talk about where bitcoin's going in terms of just the technology and it's always important i want to say this just from the very beginning there are two things of bitcoin there's uh as people will say there's uppercase bitcoin that's the uh I guess that's they call that that's the asset. There's an asset and then there's the network. And so it's always important to make sure you know which uh which Bitcoin you're talking about, right? Are you talking about the actual asset that is traded on the uh decentralized ledger or are you talking about the actual decentralized ledger uh system that Bitcoin is? And so all that to say, you know, you've got one camp in the Bitcoin uh, asset, which is very, everyone thinks about it in prices, whatever it compares to their local currency. And the most popular one being obviously the US dollar. So, you know, people will follow very closely what happens, uh, the Bitcoin price in relative terms of dollars. And obviously for 2022, not a great year. Uh, I think overall it was flat. Let me just see. Let's see exactly. Pretty sure we started at close to, at least for like 2022, you know, January to February. Bitcoin price. Yeah, so we started the year. One year. So we started the year, okay, no, I'm sorry. So we started the year about 36,000 and then we ended the year, you know, closer to like 16,000. Yep. So uh, definitely not, you know, on a year, on a one year basis, not not good performance at all in terms of dollars again. And so, um, and all that to say, you know, Bitcoin as compared to a tech stock, uh, 
similar, you know, similar kind of thing that happened to tech stocks, right? Facebook was down 80% over the, for the year last year, the whole, the market at large had its worst year since 2008. And so it wasn't a great year for a lot of assets, especially if you were in a, in a, you know, risk asset like Bitcoin. And so that's like Bitcoin, Bitcoin, the asset, right? That, okay. In terms of uh, US dollars, not great, but if you just think about it in terms of Bitcoin, in terms of Bitcoin, Bitcoin is still one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin. And so in the same way that you would, you don't, you don't measure the dollar against anything except for what it can get you, right? You might say, okay, right now a dollar can get me. I don't even know what the right comparison is, right? It used to be a dollar could get you, um, you know, a dollar could get you a tank of gas. Now a dollar can get you uh, maybe a third of a tank of gas. And maybe the gas is also not as not as uh, high quality because they're using fillers and stuff because they're trying to, those companies are trying to make sure that their profitability is, uh, is on point as well. So, I mean, I think the easiest example really fast, just, you know, kind of thinking through, yeah, we never really, we never measure the dollar uh, really against other, we're not measuring necessarily against other, um, assets. You might measure it against other currencies, definitely, but not, a, a, not, you're not like measuring it in the same way that you measure Bitcoin in terms of dollars, I would say. So, yeah, I think like median house price in 1950, you know, I think this is always a good, a really good way to just kind of gauge exactly how much the, the dollar has lost in, ter- in its value. So medium house price, medium home value in 1950, 73, we'll round up $7,400, which is just insane. Um, so th- what this says right here, um, says the median income in the U.S. in 1950 was $2,990, so about $3,000. Roughly forty percent of the median home value of seven thousand three fifty four. Okay, at the time, by two thousand ten, median home income was forty nine thousand four hundred forty four four hundred forty five, so about fifty k, or twenty two percent of the two hundred twenty one thousand eight hundred median home value. So it's just it's just crazy how just taking the house that everyone needs some kind of shelter, you know, whether they buy or rent and seeing how much the dollar has lost in terms of trying to, you know, afford buying a home or even renting a home. It's just, uh, it's very crazy. So, so yeah, that's, you know, that's one of the main things that I think every Bitcoiner has to at least point out, um, when people are like, Oh man, it was a terrible year for Bitcoin. It's like, well, um, I would say Bitcoin, its properties are are very much uh, the properties are much stronger than anything else uh, on that's currently on the open market in terms of a store value where you can securely hold your own keys. In terms of a thing, you know, an asset that you can move across time and space almost instantly using the Lightning Network, at almost free, 
and um, and then we obviously have not gotten to a unit of account yet. Uh, at least, definitely not at scale. People don't price things in Bitcoin terms, and so that's probably going to be the biggest hurdle. But all that to say, Bitcoin, uh, the price definitely the price action was not great. People, if you were holding Bitcoin, if you were buying Bitcoin, you know there's. There's two frames of mind. There's like, oh, if I'm just holding it, then I feel like I'm getting poor because everything is priced in dollars, uh, and how I I'm not really able to spend this necessarily. So I feel like the value went down. But obviously, if you were smart about buying Bitcoin, you understood that your time horizon should at least be a decade. I would say, if not, you know, two or three decades out where you would actually need the money. So you're not really worried about what the short-term volatility is doing. But if you're if you're really if you're I would say if you're a true Bitcoiner, uh, it's really it was a great opportunity. It's just got to be said. In 2022, is a great opportunity to buy more Bitcoin, get it get more Sats per dollar, than you could have you know in 2021. And essentially, it was like a second chance at getting in uh, at these cheaper prices. You know when there was all this all this fear surrounding all the fraud that happened and there was a ton of fraud that happened in the crypto community at large and uh and then obviously since bitcoin is the largest and most liquid crypto asset it was the one that you know there were forced liquidations and uh it was used as collateral for really crazy loans and all that kind of stuff so when other things in the in that ecosystem started to break uh, Bitcoin was the first to be liquidated to try to cover obligations. So all that to say, difficult to make that clear to someone who doesn't really pay attention other than like the once in a while headline that they read about Bitcoin. Um, but yeah, that's kind of where we were in the year last year. Lots of lots of like things came out. Obviously, a lot of things fell down and were exposed as frauds, which is good. And all those being centralized type of uh type of things or just flat out people lying about things or making promises they could never keep uh, in the case of like FTX or in the case of uh, of three arrows capital and so there was just a lot uh, a lot that had to be weeded out and it was honestly in a lot of ways it's good that that's out of the system now all you know it hurts to see the price go down but that's okay and so so yeah, let's look forward. Uh, so this year with Bitcoin, I know I'm going to go to the Miami conference. That's actually in May this year. And then Kendall and I are planning to also go to the Pacific Bitcoin conference that's in California. I think that's in October uh, of this year. So from an event standpoint, we can kind of just skip to the in real life uh, part. Definitely, in my opinion, best best part about Bitcoin is the in real life part of you know, with Bitcoin. And so you're getting to meet people at meetups, you're getting to go to conferences, you're getting to interact with people online that you eventually then are able to, you know, go have a dinner with and get to know better. And so I think as we come out of the, well, some of us have been out of the COVID thing for a long time, but as more and more people, you know, feel more comfortable and they are, you know, just getting out and about more, one of the great one of the great communities to be a part of is the Bitcoin community. Uh, it's full of people who are just really focused, who are very much paying attention to what's going on, 
uh, are trying to help themselves and those around them best they can. And, um, and yeah, I think it's, it's a, it is a lot of different leaders who are, who have seen the problem and just fundamentally understand that there's no one coming to save us. All politicians are liars and they have no incentive to fix the problem that they've all created over the past 50, 60 years. So, so essentially everyone has to figure out their stuff for themselves. And so, and that's kind of the mantra of Bitcoin is self-sovereignty, figuring out how to make sure your family is safe and provided for. Um, and money is a really big part of that. And, you know, making sure that you have money that cannot be devalued, making sure that you have private property that is much more difficult to be seized, um, much more difficult to be censored than the regular fiat currency and definitely any like CBDC that's, a, that's you know, maybe coming to a town near you in the near future. So I think going forward, nothing in the Bitcoin narrative for me has changed. Um, I think long-term price predictions, I think the dollar falling is is the best frame to think about it in terms of why the Bitcoin price will, will continue to go up. It's partially because Bitcoin is a scarce asset, but also because the dollar central banks, I, I'm just got to say, pretty bearish on central banks generally, uh, especially if you look at central banks around the world over the course of the last 50 years. Again, not a great track record. And the United States, obviously it has a ton, a ton of advantages over other countries because of our strength and power throughout the world. Um, but also with a globalized system, we rely on other countries for things as well. And so if all you have at the end of the day is a bunch of services, uh, you know, people doing services and also a bunch of paper fiat currency, uh, there's a lot of countries out there who are like, uh, we, we produce real things. You know, we have oil or we have natural gas or we have, you know, pick your favorite export, right? We have this real thing. And so we're, we're not interested in your paper currency because what does that give us kind of thing? Why would we trade something real that has real utility, you know, like energy? Why would we trade that for something for an IOU that you printed off somebody's face on and put a number on. So I know that sounds harsh, but all that to say, I think as, as we, you know, contract from a globalized society back to more localized society. And as the central banks just continue to not get their act together in terms of spending, uh, it's going to be, I think the dollar, I think it will always have a place. I'm pretty sure. But I think holding Bitcoin is such a smart move in the long term if you can afford to. If you can afford to ride out the volatility, it's a, it's really interesting, you know, technology that's that's pretty pretty life changing. Maybe not for you as an American if you're listening inside the United States, but if you are listening and you're from Nigeria, or you're listening and you're from Venezuela, Russia, it it's crazy. The property rights we get so spoiled in the United States of property rights. And so, yeah, I think going forward, Bitcoin is is creating a censorship-resistant money. Simply put, it is separating money and state same in the same way that we separated uh, the church and the state. We're separating money from state use, utilizing Bitcoin. And how we're doing that is it's not 
it's not controlled by any central authority. It cannot be printed more um, more than what already Satoshi has written in the uh, in the algorithm. And so there's definitely not everything is figured out necessarily because we have to figure out the security protocol once we hit the 21 million coins in 2140, the year 2140. But a lot of things are being figured out, and that's that takes us to kind of this some of the new new tech that's being built on top of um, Bitcoin. And so, some things I want to just highlight. Definitely, you know, recommend going out and getting your own Bitcoin node. You know, it's probably a two hundred and fifty dollar to three hundred dollar uh, endeavor between buying the actual like Raspberry Pi, uh, the SD, you know, the, the storage component it really that's it and then you know there's some casing and some cords and stuff like that um i would definitely recommend looking into that it's been a great experience to be able to run my own node uh in 2022 and just kind of understanding exactly what that means for the network at large and then i would say one project that really pops off to me is this is going to be really interesting is the fediment project that's f e d i uh, M I N T. Yeah. Fediment. And essentially it is, uh, transforming Bitcoin, the custody model into a more of like a community bank model. So you do, you do trust a third party to custody your Bitcoin, but you are trusting people you have social capital with already. So people in your local community and, um, and essentially it's allowing you to not, to not bear all the risk of self custody. Um, and this, so it's a really nice hybrid model of you deposit your, your Bitcoin with this, uh, Fediment. Um, I can't remember what they're calling it exactly. Fediment is just like the, the protocol, I think. And then let me see if I can find the website real fast. Um, Fediment.org. Yeah, I'm not seeing it exactly, but it's essentially what it says on here is it's an open source protocol to custody and transact Bitcoin in a community context context built on a strong foundation of privacy. So essentially making sure that you can um, your Bitcoin interacts interoperably uh, with the Lightning Network so you can make payments to anyone, anytime, anywhere. Uh, privacy, which again is, I mean, we can get into privacy and honestly, the person who knows most about it that I've heard is Matt O'Dell down in Nashville. And so he has a bunch of content that's out there on privacy because Bitcoin by default is not private. So you have to, you have to add other layers in to make it more private since it is a open source blockchain where anybody can go see exactly what Bitcoin is moving from you know wallet to wallet um it's not very difficult to use you know chain chain analysis to see exactly who owns what bitcoin and where it went and who then received that bitcoin and so it's not private by default but there are ways to build privacy into your bitcoin um you know transaction model by coin join essentially like where you mix you have a group of people Everyone puts Bitcoin in. It all kind of mixes it up together, is my understanding. And then you have a UTXO that is uh, harder to trace to the next location kind of thing. And again, it's not 
it's not necessarily that you're doing something illegal by any means. Privacy is important because you just don't want the government knowing exactly what you're doing at all times, where every single dollar is going. Uh, it's very important that corporations, big corporations and, um, and the government does not know exactly what you're doing, what you're spending your money on. And yeah, the less money, the less control that they have over the money, the better, uh, just because it allows for more freedom and there's less opportunity for the government to crack down, essentially. You know, we, I, I hope that you've done some research into CBDCs and, and understood the, the risks, but we're talking, if the government continues down the path it's on and they continue to control the, the dollars and to actually convert to digital dollars, then you know, we're talking about frozen funds because you are thinking the wrong thing or you said the wrong thing on Facebook or whatever. We're talking about you're not able to transact or we're talking about we'll give you we'll give you your paycheck a day early, but you have to spend it all in a week. And if you don't spend it in a week, it expires. And so there's just and again, hopefully it never comes to that. But those are just the opportunities that uh, that a centralized authority would have with uh, something like a central bank digital currency, and so, and all we all we know for sure is that if government has the ability to abuse the monetary and fiscal policy, they will do that. I think that's pretty safe to say. So, yep, I think that 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 is everything on the Bitcoin front. Uh, I would say just. One more thing real fast. The price the price is fun to talk about, to look at, but I would say focusing on the censorship resistance, uh, focusing on being able to transact freely and privately amongst your peers that you do business with. I think that's just way more important than whatever is happening with the price. And, you know, it's just going to be a really crazy road, I think, for the next two, 10 to 20 years on what happens with the Bitcoin price in terms of dollars. As... As the dollar continues to, you know, continues to inflate away, because at the end of the day, no matter what you've heard, the dollar is, there are more units that are being created every year um, in order to, you know, in order to fund our government, because our government only collects, you know, collects about a trillion dollars less than it uh, spends. Yeah. So all that to say, we're headed in the wrong direction. We've been headed in the wrong direction. Political motives, like we talked about, do not provide any incentive to fix the problem. And so I would say opt out of the system How and do that in whatever way you can. Obviously, if you don't have a ton of money, um, you know, week to week in order to put into Bitcoin, I would say the dollar is probably still your best bet right now. But if you have savings at all, I think it's just deciding what allocation um, you know, to put into Bitcoin. And that actually brings us to our last topic today. And that is how to find a solid financial advisor. So if they, again, this is actually a great conversation you could have with a financial advisor who would be able to look at your portfolio, look at your cash flow from month to month and let you know, hey, is it a good idea to, uh, to allocate anything into Bitcoin? Now you have to be very cautious because I would say the vast, vast, vast majority of financial advisors do not understand Bitcoin, see it as a completely volatile um, risk asset, and essentially 
wouldn't and they can't make a fee that's a big part they cannot make a fee when you invest in bitcoin at least not right now and so most of them have a uh have no incentive to explain to you about bitcoin or for themselves to even learn about bitcoin because they're like eh, i understand bonds i understand uh, stocks and reits and all those things and that's what my fees are based on and so i'm just going to focus on those so brings us to the first point actually for how to find a solid financial advisor questions to ask first question right off the bat are you a fiduciary are you as a financial advisor a fiduciary and the answer to that question needs to be yes what all that that really means is that the financial advisor um, is required to put your needs as the client above their own and so it, the bitcoin case the case it's a great example do they, if they're a fiduciary and you're interested in Bitcoin and you want to put an allocation into Bitcoin, um, they, if they're a fiduciary, they should uh, give you, you know, a straight answer of, yeah, maybe it makes sense to put one percent of your of your portfolio into self custody Bitcoin, in a you know in a private secure way. And so, um, and if they're like, no, I wouldn't recommend Bitcoin, even when you're like, well, I've done a lot of research. And this is actually an asset that I'm very passionate about having some allocation into. You just be very wary if they if they're like, well, I don't, I wouldn't recommend, kind of thing. Even a very very small percentage of your portfolio, you know. Um, especially if you're a young person. If you're a young person, you've got to think you you're going to ride the wave of volatility, um, presumably even in the stock market, right? And every financial advisor would tell you if you're under the age of thirty, you know, you need to be pretty close to 100% allocated to equities, stocks, and reason for that is they have the highest, you know, upside potential. And, and they obviously, obviously, they have the most downside potential, but in the short term, we don't care. And, and for some reason, some financial advisors cannot wrap their heads around that you can apply the same thing to, to Bitcoin. And so I would just say, but overall, Bitcoin aside, you you need to make sure your financial advisor is a fiduciary. You need to make sure that they're not just selling you a product because they make a fat fee on it and then it's going to fund their next vacation or, or a boat or whatever it is, right? You need to make sure that if they're giving you advice, it's because it's what's best for you and your family. So, and I know there's a lot of Bitcoiners out there who are, you know, they're kind of skeptical of financial advisors, especially because financial advisors are just, I would just say so uneducated about Bitcoin. And, uh, and I think very, very soon they're going to all have to get in line and uh, learn about Bitcoin in order to serve their clients best and keep their clients. So, all right, that's the first thing. Are they fiduciary? Next question, talk to them about their planning process. And again, if you're asking me, and especially if you're a young person, I just don't care as much about allocation. Uh, and I, I will have a caveat for that, you know, here in just a second, but I'll just say the general, my general take is you want to find a financial advisor who is focused on the planning first and foremost and then and then obviously they still allocate your money in some kind of portfolio right we don't we definitely don't want it sitting in cash for 40 years and so i think making sure that you have a, a planner or a financial advisor who is a planner who is focused on helping you think through what goals you want to hit in the near term and midterm and then you know long term and helping you develop a plan on how to get there exactly, right? 
And then also making sure that you're planning for any uh, worst case scenarios, like making sure you have a will or a trust, making sure that your planner is working with your CPA to, to uh, minimize your tax bill in every legal way possible. And also just making sure that your advisor is taking a look at your uh, liability packages, I would say every year. So insurance or uh, any kind of, um, just any kind of thing that protects you from uh, loss or theft or um, damage, anything like that. You just wanna make sure that one, you're covered sufficiently on all those policies and that, and that you're getting the most competitive premium uh, that's on the market right now. So you just want to make sure that someone is doing, I would say, at least a couple planning meetings with you a year. And again, they can talk to me all they want about, oh, we're here at whatever firm. We we're able to beat the market, you know, this many years out of out of the last decade. It's like, well, I just don't really care because generally nobody can beat the market. I would say the vast majority, like 99% of advisors have no, no ability or business in trying to beat the market. They just need to try to keep up with the market and not make fatal mistake mistakes. And really it's, it's all about planning. It's all about making sure that we have the correct allocation between cash and, uh, and the different asset classes. And then, um, and then, you know, just kind of adjusting over time as the goals change, as life changes, you can adjust your, your plan accordingly. And so definitely asking them about their planning process. I did promise uh, a little caveat to the allocation question. And that is just because I think for the last couple decades, um, just putting money into an index fund and letting the, letting the tech stocks kind of rip up and make, you know, make your advisor look really smart, make you look really smart. If you did like a, you know, just like a regular S&P 500 index fund investment for 10 to 15 years, you know, you're like, oh, wow, I, I know exactly what I'm doing. Uh, I think in the future, it's going to be much more difficult to just to just dump into the index fund and then ride it out. I think you're going to potentially have to um, have an advisor who is who is better at picking winners and losers and knowing exactly when to give up, when, when to enter. Uh, when to exit, all those kinds of things from an equity standpoint. And I think that's just because the world that we all grew up in of globalization, and um, I think we're potentially just entering a time where that, that changes. And so I think it's very, very important that you have definitely a technically uh, talented advisor. But show me their planning first, I would say. Every time, I would rather have someone who is sitting down with me doing the planning stuff. Um, and then, cause I know I can go to, and I can go to Vanguard and, and do what most advisors do in terms of just throwing money into, you know, uh, a regular kind of age weighted portfolio or an index one. I can do that. I want the planning. That's where the value comes in. All right. Last question. We'll wrap up here. Uh, the last question would be, how are you planning to weather a recession for your clients? And, um, I think obviously advisors also have a little bit of an incentive right now to say, Hey, what we're seeing is not going to be that bad because they don't want people to get real worried. And again, it's all about communication and that really should be what the focus should be on that, on that answer. You want the advisor to say, look, 
from the very beginning, I'm going to make sure your expectations are set in a solid way. We're, you know, we're not going to beat the market every year. There are going to be years that we're going to be in the negatives. And here's how we're going to go about that. You know, here's how often we're going to meet for that. Here's, you know, the different conversations that we might have about, well, do we take this risk or do we sit on the sidelines? And so I think just making sure you understand exactly how the communication is supposed to work, how frequent you're supposed to be able to communicate, and in what way does that communication happen? Is that over the phone? Is that in person? And uh, yeah, and all that it comes down to is, hey, look, we know if we're looking, if we're trying to look out 20 years, and this is the goal we're trying to hit, right? We're trying to retire in 20 years. We can take some volatility in the, in the middle. We can take a recession in 2023, 2024. Um, but how are we going to bounce back? How are we going to try to make the smartest decisions throughout that entire season of good times in the market and bad times in the market? And just make sure at the end of the day, like you don't, you don't lose anything that it would be uh, easy to not lose, right? And you just make sure that you've got everything lined up from a liability protection standpoint, from an asset protection standpoint. And, uh, and yeah, making sure that if you're in a blended family and you die, you make sure that everything is in order. You've got every, all the assets lined up to go to the correct people at the correct time. Even if that means, hey, we got to hire an attorney and actually uh, draw up a trust, not just a will. So again, all those things, an advisor doesn't do all those things, but an advisor, your financial advisor really kind of like is the quarterback who kind of says, okay, you really need to do this. I'm not the guy who does that, but I know a great estate attorney, estate planning attorney who will do that for you. Or I got a great CPA. He's going to do the tax planning. He's, we're going to work hand in hand on that front. And, uh, and also does a great job on the actual prep, making sure that you're filed correctly, you're filed on time, you're paid on time, and also helps if you get any correspondence from the government's, government agencies. So all let's say, those are the things I would kind of focus on for how to find a solid financial advisor. So fiduciary planning process, and talk to me about communication, talk to me about how you're planning to weather a recession, a potential recession, potential recession. We'll see. I hope there's no recession. So all right, that is our show for January 19th, 2023. I hope you all enjoyed that one. And uh, yeah, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me on my Twitter. My Twitter is guess underscore Jordan. And with that, I will talk to you all soon. Have a great week.